The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Go at it live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW Look Back podcast, proudly brought to you by SJP World Media. I am Sai, and joining me as always on our I suppose, kind of returning episode, because Danny and I have both been away on our holidays, is the aforementioned wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. How are you doing, sir? Very well, mate. Um, totally refreshed. Uh, yeah, just went up to Scotland and uh, saw some family and things like that. But um, how was your holiday? Yeah, it weren't too bad, mate. It weren't too bad. We were very fortunate with the weather. Uh, had some nice sunshine. It was very warm. The, my my kids loved it, playing in the on the sand and you know in the sea and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it it worked out quite well for us, timing wise, weather wise, and so on. So yeah, but uh, yeah, back to it then, my friend. Back to it after your break and then my break and so on, and we're back to it with a pay per view. Bloody love pay per view day, Danny, don't we? Oh, absolutely, mate, and a massive one. We're on World War Three, nineteen ninety six. We are indeed. We are indeed. This is, uh, well, yes, the next step in our Nitro WCW look back project, however you want to word it. We are up to the 24th of November 1996 for World War III, the second World War III pay-per-view format that WCW produced. This is from the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. And the winner of this gets, well, the winner of the 60-man battle royal gets a title shot at some point in the future. The pay-per-view buy rate for this particular show uh, was close to the 200,000 mark, which is more than double what World War III 1995 got. So it shows how far WCW have come just in that 12-month period, Danny, I think. Yeah, absolutely, mate. The numbers are just going up and up and up, aren't they? They are indeed. They are indeed. Uh, in, in attendance, that particular evening was just a smidge over 10,000 people. But the arena itself, to me, I don't know if it's because it had the, the three rings set up or it seemed like a very high roof. I'm not 100% sure. Even though it was a 10,000 arena or, or well, maybe more, about 10,000 uh, and, and change were there. It felt much, much larger than that. Yeah. 
I noticed that as well, especially when we get to the uh, middle of the pay-per-view. There were some crowd shots that were like, wow, is there more than 10,000 here? But yeah, I would mm. agree with that, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Uh, before we dive into this Sunday night pay-per-view show, however, we need to have a little look what happened in WCW the night before. And we have to check out what happened on WCW Saturday night. WCW Saturday night is brought to you by me. Scottish Danny. Danny, what have you got for us, my friend? Very eventful uh, lineup this week, Sai. So we have in our opener, we have Kevin Sullivan defeating Scotty Riggs. Okay. Yep. We have Chris Jericho defeating Sergeant Craig Pittman. Okay. We have your favourite, uh, Sai, Arn Anderson defeating Bunkhouse Buck. Bunkhouse Buck, fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, we have the amazing French Canadians defeating Mark Starr and Casey Thompson. I'll have to have a Google about Casey Thompson. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get to wrestlers who I don't recognize when we get to the main event. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Chris um, Jeff Jarrett defeating Mike Enos. Okay. And. Yep, in our semi, well, in our main event, we have Lord Stephen Regal, the WCW t- television champion, defending his championship against the cruiserweight champion, Dean Belenko. And it had a very um, unique finish because we, we talk about these uh, unique finishes WCW have all the time on here. Ha- get your mind around this one, Sai. So when Regal lifted his shoulder as Malenko had him covered with a roll-up into a bridge, with Malenko pinning, Malenko actually ended up pinning himself. So does that mean yeah. he won and lost at the same time? Yes, kind of. <laughs> I found it very weird, but like basically, um, it's like scoring an own goal, isn't it? Like Malenko pinning himself yeah. and costing himself the match. I found wow. I actually really have to dig that out and find that. Because I want to see the reaction. Yeah, yeah, could be interesting. Could be interesting to see how that all worked. Uh, heading into the pay per view, then we are greeted by our commentary team of Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes, and he's back in his big red leather jacket. The jacket is back, Danny. We've missed that, haven't we? Yes, we certainly have. He only dusts that off only for pay-per-views. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we begin with a match that I've got a few notes about, but similar to a previous edition of Nitro Nights here on the SJP World Media Network, I'm not going to dive massively into because I would rather people went and checked it out themselves if they've not watched it already. Uh, we begin with Rey Mysterio Jr. taking on Ultimo Dragon. Now, Ultimo Dragon is champion of everything and everywhere at this stage in his career. He comes to the ring with about 86 world title belts in a wheelbarrow, um, a rucksack full of championships as well. He, he, he's basically weighed down with the amount of gold he has to carry, Danny, isn't he? He really is, mate, yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas Rey comes to the ring just like Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a very, very good costume here. Yeah, I'm surprised they got away with that, especially when you had Arachna Man, who uh, 
you know, caused a lawsuit towards WCW in, in previous years. But there we go. Uh, as I said, I mean, there's a few spots I want, I want to I want to bring up here. First of all, this this is this is fantastic. This match is incredible, and I implore people who you know, if you're looking for something a random wrestling match to watch at any stage this week, and you've not seen this match before, or you've not seen it in a very long time, go and check out Rey Mysterio versus Ultimo Dragon from the opening of WCW World War Three 1996. It is superb. They are both incredibly quick. They both know exactly what they're doing here. It's not just spots for spots' sake, which sometimes you get in these more high-flying contests, especially in modern day. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed this, Danny, as you can probably tell by how much I'm yeah. uh, banging on about it. What were your thoughts? <laughs> it, it was really good. Um, I found a lot of this match was Rey Mysterio fighting up, trying to get the advantage, but um, Ultima Dragon was definitely dominating all throughout this match, wasn't he? Yes, indeed. Uh, Ultimate Dragon basically did control the majority of the contest. Um, we do get, a, a, I suppose, a, a Cesaro swing is is what people might recognize it as now, when Ultimate Dragon spins Ray round and round and round. Uh, Ultimate Dragon also hits a Brain Buster. Uh, Tombstone Power Driver on the outside as well. There's lots of near falls here before eventually we get uh, an attempt by Ray at a West Coast pop, which is countered into a, a power bomb uh, assisted by the top rope for Ultimo Dragon to win the match. And it is just a brilliant opener. Really sets the tone for the pay-per-view, I feel. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I'd love to see these two wrestle any time. So hopefully this isn't the last time. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, speaking of people we love to see, Mean Gene is here. And he is plugging the website, the rather, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? www.wcw.wrestling.com or some fucking nonsense like that. They obviously didn't really think that one through. And he, he, you know, he plugs the website and says that people need to get on there. They've made updates to the website and, and, and improvements to the website. And then they show us an image of Hacksaw Jim Duggan on the front page of the website. And it, it's it's very much of its time. And... People now, I mean, for example, my kids, if, if they saw this website homepage and the design and the font and the layout of it and so on, they, they would just laugh. But for me, it's really nostalgic seeing stuff like that because I can remember it being, I, I was my kid's age when the internet was like that, Danny. <laughs> it, it's certainly, as you said, of his time, but I think they could have chosen a better wrestler to, to put on the front page than Hexel Jim Tuggan. <laughs> Hey, oi, we'll have no Jim Duggan slander here. Oh, Thank yes. Very much. Of course, from <laughs> show, yes. <laughs> uh, mean Gene also, of course, plugs the, uh, the, the phone line that he has um, because that's how he used to make quite a bit of his money. And then he's going to speak with Diamond Dallas Page. He asks Page about Eric Bischoff joining the NWO. He asks Paige about his links with the NWO. He then talks to Paige about how Bischoff is his neighbour. And DDP basically just says, I don't want to talk about any of that. And, and then starts talking about winning the Battle Royal later in the night and disappears. So that was that was kind of that, really, Danny, wasn't it? Yeah, I feel Mean Gene on this was playing a part really well. But the DDP could have done a lot more. I know they want to keep it mysterious and, oh, what's going on here with DDP? But I felt like DDP didn't live up to himself in this interview. I don't know about you, sir. Yeah, I, I still think he's I still think he's finding his way, to be honest. Yeah. I still, in, in moments like this, we get comments about 
the diamond cutter and it being the the most you know conclusive finish in wrestling today, as Paige calls it. And he's talking about well, he's he's not talking about the NWO and Bischoff. And I think okay, this is all right. Then when he starts talking about the Battle Royal, uh, and he's, he 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 kind of reverts back into the page that we saw in '95. And granted, this is only 12, what we're on now, November, so 14 months ago in regards to the, the actual real timeline as opposed to the timeline of our podcast. But 14 months ago in, in WCW's timeline back then, it's not a long time ago, so I can understand why we get these little moments where he slips back into that kind of character. But we had the old, uh, you know, the good God and all that sort of stuff sneaking back in. And yeah. um, <laughs> it... I still think Paige is really trying to, you know, fine tune his character at this point. So I think we're going to get those moments where there, there are a few wobbles, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next is something that uh, I'm really intrigued to hear your opinion about this, Danny. To be fair, we have Chris Jericho, and he is taking on referee Nick Patrick. And Jericho has his arm tied behind his back. Now, obviously, this is—I was going to say this is a gimmick match. It's more than that. There's several gimmicks going on at once here. Of course, we have the tease of Nick Patrick being NWO uh, as well. Jericho has his arm tied. Nick Patrick is a referee and not a wrestler, uh, and so on. There's a lot going on here with regards to stipulations uh, and so on. I personally thought this went quite well what did you think overall mate yeah very much the same i found this you said it perfectly gimmick um because from the second you saw nick patrick come out in that ridiculous robe um, (laughs) he's absolutely playing up to this whole character um yeah this was very much um, belonged on a pay-per-view because we've had weeks of build-up and it hasn't always been the best build-up with bloody Alan Sharp or whatever. Um, yeah. Loved this entire match. Yeah, it was very, very well done. The crowd reaction for Nick Patrick is superb as well, by the way. He gets one of the biggest reactions of the night when the boos just echo around that arena when he comes out. And, I mean, Jericho obviously does the majority of the work here. But when you're watching wrestling as an older wrestling fan and you kind of know how it works and you listen to interviews and people tell you how they did this and how they did that and so on, you can tell you know, with an educated eye, I guess, that Jericho is doing the majority of the work here. Jericho is guiding Nick Patrick uh, and so on. But Nick Patrick is an absolute star for these few minutes of television. He's just complete comedy. He's still got his neck brace on, for crying out loud, whilst wrestling a, a bloody wrestling match. His facial reactions to anything Jericho does is just pure gold. It's it's so good. He's just absolute comedy. He's, he screams and shouts every time Jericho touches him. He's he's shouting at Teddy Long on the outside. It's uh, I thought Nick Patrick was, was was he was far better than in reality. I think he had any right to be. He he was really good. Yeah, he really was, man. And it goes back to, I believe he trained to be a wrestler, but I think an injury stopped him, so he became a referee. So I think he really had his working shoes on um, here on this match. And Mm. I just loved his selling as well when Chris Jericho was kicking him and putting the booze to him. He was just selling it very, very well. 
Yes, indeed. I mean, he even gets a bit of offense in, doesn't he? Um, he yeah. he punches and and kicks at Jericho a few times. Uh, Jericho at one point goes for a clothesline on the outside. Uh, Nick Patrick moves, and Jericho with his good arm, his his non tied up arm, um, strikes the ring post. So then Nick Patrick works on the arm for a little bit before eventually Nick Patrick is thrown off the top rope. And there's a bit of a timing issue here, and it's a bit wonky. But you know, again, Nick Patrick's not a wrestler. It is to be expected; these things aren't going to run completely smoothly. Jericho's using one arm for crying out loud, uh, so it, it does look a bit clunky. But ultimately, Nick Patrick does take the big bump off the top rope before Jericho wins with a super kick. Um, yeah, again, I, I quite enjoyed this. As far as comedy matches go, I, I thought this was really good. Yeah, I mean, it could have been a lot worse than um, it was, and it was really, really fun to watch. Yeah, without a doubt, mate, without a doubt. We're back with Mean Gene straight after this, and he introduces Ric Flair, just to get him on the show, basically, just to get him on the show. And the crowd react to this, and you can see why they just wanted him on the show. The pop for Flair is huge. Yeah. Flair cuts a promo for, I don't know, 90, 90 seconds, two, three, four minutes, however long it may well have been. Doesn't really say anything though, Danny, to be fair. Um, the only thing I got out of this was that he was very adamant about WCW uniting. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then we get the, the standard woos and the strutting, but the crowd are lapping this up. They're loving the guy at this point. So they really there we are. Go. Mate. Yeah. They oh, are. And what, what I loved about Ric Flair, even with an injured arm, he can still pull off the strut. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, um, we have what is being billed here now as a return grudge match. I'm not overly convinced about this. I feel that Jarrett has kind of been crowbarred into this spot against the giant i don't really see why the giant would give that much of a shit about jeff jarrett to be fair and it feels like after their first encounter which was at the the previous pay-per-view danny wasn't it what was that yeah halloween havoc yeah. halloween havoc there we go thank you it, it feels like this rematch is being built around the fact that Jarrett says, okay, you beat me, but you didn't choke slam me. Why would the giant give a shit? <laughs> Too much logic, my friend. Um, I think you're 100% dead on. And I think Ric Flair's injury just shows massively here because I think it would be Ric Flair versus the giant here mm. if he wasn't injured. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, the giant is still wearing the... WCW United States title, which we get told at the start of this match, no longer is the property of Ric Flair. Ric Flair has, uh, because of his injury, uh, surpassed the 30-day time limit to defend his title. Bloody hell, I imagine that being applied in modern day. The 30, yeah, 30 <laughs> days to defend your title, and Flair is no longer the US champion. But the Giant isn't either, we're reminded. He has just stolen the belt, and, and that's that. So I assume we're going to be heading to some form of tournament or, or match of some description to find the US championship a new home. Um, one thing that really does stand out for me with this, well, two things, I suppose. First of all, the, the match follows a very similar format to what we saw at the previous pay-per-view with regards to Jeff Jarrett being the smaller, quicker guy, um, trying to 
hit and move, I suppose, would be the way to word it. Whereas the whereas the giant is much bigger, much more powerful, much slower. And if he gets his hands on Jarrett, then Jarrett's in trouble. But that's why Jarrett is sort of hitting and moving and using his speed, etc. And the second thing that really stands out to me is we're there criticizing how Jarrett has been kind of crowbarred into this scenario, why it doesn't make 100% sense with regards to why they're fighting and why it's billed as this big grudge match and so on. But the crowd don't care. They are well into this, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. And um, credit to both of these guys, but more to Jeff Jarrett because he's hit the ground running, hasn't he, from day one when he arrived in that limousine uh, on that trial. He is really, really just... Um, just being on point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It gets, um, I think it's difficult as well in a way because I don't think people are a hundred percent convinced on the baby face aspect of Jarrett here. Listening to the crowd, obviously he's facing the NWO or uh, well, sorry, a NWO member. Apologies. So you get you get mixed crowd reactions from that aspect anyway, don't you? Because the, even though they're supposed to be the heels, people love the NWO and so on. Jarrett is part of the Horseman, or at least associated with the Horseman at this point. His, I suppose, official membership is still debated to this day. But Jarrett isn't getting a reaction that an Arn Anderson would, or a Benoit would, or even a Mongo would. He's getting more i would say more booze than cheers when his music hits and for me the presentation of jarrett kind of contributes to that he's wearing that ring gear that makes him look like an absolute dick (laughs) it's you know the nwo look cool jarrett looks just like he just looks ridiculous his music is quite obnoxious and I mean, you, to me, to me, you, you can have music that's generic and works with whatever. You can have entrance themes that are just absolute bangers and work with whatever. But then you also, I think, have music that is very much heel music or very much babyface music. Yeah. And it's difficult to cheer for someone with certain music as it is difficult to not react in a positive manner when certain music hits, even if a, if a particular wrestler is is a heel. I think Jarrett's music here is kind of heelish. It doesn't. It doesn't inspire people to get excited and get on their feet or anything like that. It's it's just generic country, and, and there's nothing wrong with country. I quite like a bit of country music, but this this particular piece of country music is quite heelish. It reminds me very much of his heel run in WWF the previous year, so that's going to be fresh in wrestling fans' minds as well. His I mean, Jarrett himself... Not now. I mean, you hear him in interviews, you hear him on his own podcast. I'm now a big fan of Jeff Jarrett. But Jarrett here, and for the majority of his wrestling career, I guess, he's just quite unlikable. Yeah. There's just something about him, which is, which is a fantastic trait for a pro wrestler to have, to have that ability to just be disliked. But if that's the case, why are they crowbarring him into this this position where he's getting booed against a, a faction that they want to be the bad guys. I mean, I, I, I can't explain why they were thinking that, Danny. What do you think about that? It's a very interesting question, mate, but I'm just thinking that the crowd are thinking that they're one step ahead of him and 
uh, assuming that one day he'll just turn on the four horsemen so they don't want to get fully invested in him as a baby face but I could be wrong with that but that's how I'm feeling that th- where these boos are coming from interesting okay I didn't I didn't think of that I, I didn't enter my mind I just assumed it was just because you know Jarrett's not a very likable fella but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too <laughs> yeah yeah maybe um this match is, is effectively dominated, as I said, by, by Jarrett being the quicker of the guy and the giant being the much larger, more powerful competitor. Um, before we start getting a, a bit of a commotion in the crowd, a bit of a reaction from the audience, and they're all turning around and pointing, and Sting is there. And this, it's so simple. So, so simple. But I think this is one of the most effective uses of Sting being in the distance so far because this 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 arena is so big it's so vast and they've got this um kind of gantry kind of balcony walkway right at the very top of the arena and sting's just walking along it and they find him with a spotlight and he's in the shadows he's in the background and and again incredibly simple stings at a, a, a huge distance away from anything he's walking along and a spotlight finds him but it was just really, really effective for me. And then, of course, he makes his way down to the ring. The crowd are going wild and so on. And talk us through what happens here, Danny. Absolutely. Um, Sting, so he'll walk down the crowd, jump over the rail, and nails Jeff Jarrett with an absolute scorpion death drop that looks very violent. The giant gets a massive choke slam in and gets the one, two, three. Now, the only thing, I didn't have a problem with this, but the announcers really on are on overdrive when they speculate that Sting's in with the NWO. Um, I felt that they harped on this a bit too much. What did you think, sir? Okay, sort of foreshadowing, maybe. Is that what you're? Is that what you're kind yeah, of? Yeah, I, I, th- I feel like. Um, I mean, I I don't associate Sting with the NWO at all. Like I even in this stage, um, I just feel like the announcers trying to push that narrative forward a bit too much. Right. Okay. So trying to make a uh, trying to set up a potential swerve, but trying a bit too hard, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see where you're coming from. I really can. Uh, I suppose the only way to gauge it. I mean, we're we're looking at this in in 2023. We're x amount of years ahead of where they were back then. I suppose the only way to truly gauge what was happening and the crowd reactions and what people were thinking would be to speak to somebody who lived through it week to week there and then. Because uh, as far as, I mean, I know Sting is not with the NWO. You know that. Everyone listening now knows that. But in 96, I'm going to, I totally get your point in that the distraction is almost too obvious, I suppose. The, the sort of a hinting at one direction, making you believe it's going to go the other, is a little bit too obvious. They're trying too hard. But in 96, would people have thought that? I don't know, because you, whereas you've got Bobby Heenan constantly banging on about Sting wearing the black and white and being NWO and so on, the other commentators aren't as convinced. I mean, here they are. Here they're talking, yes, he must be. But in previous shows, I don't think Shivani really believes he's NWO yet. Yeah. And then yeah, 
uh, sorry, a bit later on on this pay per view, we get an interview with Lex Luger, and Luger is saying that he doesn't know what's going on with Sting, and Sting handed him a bat and then turned his back on him. Now you remember back to that incident on Nitro. If he was NWO, he would have attacked Luger. Yeah. So I suppose it is still adding that sort of mystique, the question mark, the the, the uncertainty over what's going on with Sting, and the fact that we're still. I mean, like I said, this is 1996. We're in 2023 now. The fact that we're still talking about this character, we're still debating what was happening in November of 96 and around the same time, and we're going to continue to for for, for the foreseeable because, you know, it, it, it carries on. And the fact that uh, Steve Borden himself is still walking around with that face paint on, playing a very similar gimmick on television to this day, and is about to go and wrestle in front of 80 plus thousand people in Wembley Arena, uh, sorry, Wembley Stadium, apologies, in his 60s, still off, still portraying this version of Sting. I think it just goes to show how incredible this whole character and the mystique around it actually was. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, mate. You're 100% on with that. I didn't think about, like, living through this at the time yeah you would definitely think oh is he in or is he out especially when you consider the colors but Mm. um yeah interesting all around i love the whole imagery as well of of sting not coming down the aisle of sting being in the stands or in the in the crowd or in, in you know sat way up high in you know in in the the upper reaches of whatever arena they're in i just think all of it is just it's so simple and we've not got any you know stupid special effects supernatural bullshit that you get (laughs) with bray wyatt who to me is one of the most mishandled and and badly booked wrestlers of, of the modern era so much potential with various different characters that bray wyatt portrayed totally dropped the ball on him on numerous occasions and we had all this supernatural bullshit coming into it the undertaker we had supernatural bullshit with the undertaker but he was strong enough to to get through it when kane was shooting stuff out of his fingers and all that sort of stuff okay you know 10 year old kids might have loved that i look back on that now it's bullshit (laughs) yeah (laughs) anything supernatural in in professional wrestling I struggle with as a grown up, especially. But even as a kid, I was a bit like, nah, ain't too sure about that. Yeah. Here with Sting, we've got the face paint. He's not said a word. And there is no supernatural crap. There is no, you know, nonsense and shooting fireworks and all this sort of bollocks. But it just works. And to me, it just shows how sometimes the simplest of plans can be the most effective. Yeah. You're 100% on with that. And I think something that we're probably, I'm not sure if WCW did this. I know ECW and uh, WWE did this a, for a lot and overused it was the um, lights out effect. That's something yeah. I just cannot stand anymore. Um, I'm so glad they oh, haven't okay. done that here either. You've just seen Sting run down just like a normal person, just running down, walking down, stalking. Um, you've never, I mean, what do you think about the lights out effect, Si? Um, I think it's incredibly effective if done correctly. Mm. I look at, I suppose an issue that we've got with modern day is that everyone's got a camera phone now. Yeah. So, 
I mean, even people who have a crappy 20-year-old handset can turn a torch on. Even they can turn the, 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 the flash on their phone on to make it a constant light and shine it into the ring, which makes the lights out, lights on again effect sometimes not have the desired visual effect because there's lights coming on in the background. Back in... We'll use ECW as an example, because that's what you mentioned. This little dingy, tiny arena that took a couple of thousand people. And, I mean, smell vision hasn't been invented, of course, but just by watching <laughs> ECW events from the, the ECW arena, as it was worded, the old bingo hall and so on, it looks like it fucking stinks of BO and yeah. piss, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, so it's a proper dingy little dump. The production values on their recordings is quite poor because they had no money. And again, we're going back to the, you know, we're going back pushing 30 years, of course. Now, when the lights go out there and then come back on and a Brian Pillman is stood in the ring or Taz or Sabu or whatever, that really works. That's crazy effective. In the WWE, they went for a spell of doing that with The Undertaker. But you'd hear the gong, the light would go off. So instantly you knew who it was going to be. Light would come on and he'd be stood in the ring. That, again, I think is incredibly effective. But I think it's effective because it's The Undertaker. And he's uh, he, well, he was at a point where anything he did worked. Because of just, you know, he, he's you know a legend in the business. So anything he does will always garner a reaction. WCW, I don't, to my memory, I don't think they use it very often but I wouldn't have an issue with it. I wouldn't have a problem if the lights go off and then Sting is stood there. Um, My only stumbling block with that would be that Sting is currently operating outside of the company, I guess, for want of a better phrase. No one knows if he's NWO or WCW. No one knows who he's siding with. Sting turning up in the rafters and then making his way down to the ring through the crowd feels real as daft as that sounds because he's wearing black and white face paint and looks you know like a cartoon character as daft as that sounds it it feels real if the lights went out came back on and sting was stood there the the logical thought process would be okay so he's got someone in the production truck to help him with this so it takes away a little bit of the edginess a little bit of the reality for me yeah okay you know yeah but um, the biggest one for me is Pillman in ECW. When those lights went out and then they came back on and Pillman was stood in the middle of the ring, what a moment that was. Mm. So I think it's I think it's got its it's it's got its place, it's got its time in, in professional wrestling. I think it's incredibly effective when done correctly and not overused. But I also think in today's wrestling on the, the very top level. So we're talking a WWE, especially with their production values, because everything is a fucking light, isn't it? The crowd barrier <laughs> is a light. The ring apron is a fucking computer screen. The turnbuckles probably, you know, turn into helicopters and fly around the arena. <laughs> There's so much going on with these different. Everything is lit up. It, to me, it's very difficult to get that actual effect of complete lights out, complete lights back on again. Yeah. For it to work in the way it did in the smaller arenas. It's kind of how I how I feel about it now, I suppose. But again, they might do it next week and completely prove me wrong. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there we are. Uh, 
the giant wins after a choke slam. Anyway, um, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, up next, Roddy Piper's music hits, and I totally forgot that this was going to be happening on this pay per view when I pressed play, but I'm glad that it did. We have Roddy Piper coming to the ring to basically get the contract signed for the match he wants against Hogan. Now, the last couple of occasions we've had Piper in the ring, whether it was at Halloween Havoc when he made his debut, which was a fantastic moment when he first arrived, absolutely superb, or when he was in the ring with Bischoff and, and Bischoff was you know unveiled as being part of the NWO. It loses its way a little bit because Piper likes to get the last word in. He has certain catchphrases or, or comments in his mind. He feels he has to get in, and and will force them into the into the conversation. Sometimes even if they don't particularly make sense. But and I suppose at times it can seem rambling, especially the Halloween Havoc. We we spoke about it at length with our Halloween Havoc show a few weeks back, Danny. It loses its way and just goes on too long, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does, yeah. Here, I feel this almost goes the same way, but they just managed to reel it back in time. What did you yeah. think about this whole contract signing segment? Just before we get into it, I think the biggest um, black eye on it was the fact that Hulk Hogan appeared because I feel that this could have been done without Hulk Hogan. I know the contract signing, but I th- feel like Roddy Piper could have signed it and then they could have waited till another date where Hulk Hogan signed it. I feel Hogan came out too late. Um, the segment had already peaked with Eric Bischoff and Roddy Piper going at it. But, um, I mean, we can get into it uh, now because, yeah, I, I, overall it was good, but I feel Hulk Hogan coming out that late into it, it was like... Oh, you are there. Why did you bother showing up at the end? <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So you think this would have gone better with no Hogan? Mm. Yeah, I feel because unless you're bringing out Hulk Hogan first, um, I feel like he like he almost looked like a coward because he kind of sent out... I mean, that is his character after all. But like he should have come out like first to confront... Piper, but then you wouldn't have Eric Bischoff come out. Oh, it's, it's a hard one to say, but I, th- I just, in jest, I think Hulk Hogan came out too late during this. That part of, of what you're thinking, I agree with. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that Bischoff came out without Hogan initially. Yeah. Because this is the first time we're seeing Bischoff since the turn on Nitro. Yeah. And Bischoff comes out with a microphone and is allowed to get a, a few lines in which is, you know, I think quite important because people are going to be wondering what's going on. And I like the explanation of of why Hogan isn't with him. He mm. says Hollywood is a little busy at the moment. He's had some scripts arrive to him and he has to look through them right now. So it's like, Piper, you're not even, a, a, you know, you're not even important at this moment in time. You're way down his priorities list and so on. Yeah. And, and then he turns and says, I, I've got, you know, he's signed over his... Uh, his legal representation to me so I can sign the contract on his behalf and so on. And it's so dismissive of Piper. It's so making Piper like, oh, we're not bothered, you're not a priority and so on. I really liked the way they downplayed Piper in that in that aspect because that is exactly how the Hollywood Hogan character, to me, should be. Yeah. 
I enjoyed Piper turning to Vincent, the former Virgil, and saying, you back off, I taught you how to fight. I love that reference, going back to the days of Virgil, the million-dollar man, and, and the WWF storyline where Roddy Piper taught him how to wrestle ready for his matches with DiBiase in the WWF. I love that reference. That was fantastic. Yeah. I enjoyed Eric Bischoff saying that I will fine you to Piper if he lays a hand on him. And Piper's response being, how much would it cost me just to knock you out? I really enjoyed that. I thought that was superb. But this is, again, an issue, I think, when you have non-scripted promos, people like Piper who like to go into business for themselves. And then uh, Eric Bischoff, to me, is one of the greatest and most underrated at certain times on-screen wrestling personalities that there's ever been. I think the guy is fantastic. Here... He's no longer an announcer, and he's no longer just somebody in AEW holding the microphone like a, a second-rate mean gene. Yeah. Here he's a character for the very first time, and you can you can see he's not quite sure of himself. And, and he's explained it on his own podcast that he was very nervous about this because he'd never done anything like it before. In that instance, I feel scripted promos, whereas I hate them normally, if this was a little bit more structured, a little bit more scripted, we might have got to the point a bit quicker. Mm. And then when Hogan does come out after Piper calls him a coward, it wouldn't have... I think to me that, that would have eradicated the potential timing issue that we're talking about with regards to Hogan coming out too late and the lines from Piper about how much to knock you out and I taught you how to fight to Virgil and so on. That they were they were strong moments in this segment, yeah. And when Hogan came out, it, it felt like it had peaked, as you said, Danny. If it was if it was structured a little bit, with regards to would, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Yeah, um, I just want to say this. Um, there was an iconic shot of when Eric Bischoff was walking down the uh, ramp with um, Vince. I wrote down. Wow, Vince and Eric Bischoff are walking together uh, down the aisle. You wouldn't see that um, in '96, uh, would you? <laughs> wow, well, there you go. But, um, that Tony Schiavone actually said something very similar, didn't he? Yeah, I yeah, never thought. I I'd, I'd never thought from, yeah. But I loved um, also that this is the basically the birth of. Um, you said it uh, on our last episode. So um, Eric Bischoff is the like the original big. Um, heel authority figure well before Vince McMahon. This is over a year before that Mr. McMahon um, character is born. And this is the look that's going to basically define Eric Bischoff is the jeans, leather jacket, jet black hair and NWO t-shirt. When you think of Eric Bischoff, when anyone thinks of Eric Bischoff, this is the look that they think of. Yeah, I agree. And according to Bischoff himself, again, in, in his books and his own podcasts and interviews he's done, this was who Bischoff was. He he wouldn't go to work in a suit. He would be wearing jeans and a, and a jacket and a T-shirt and so on. Uh, this was who Bischoff was. So I quite like the fact that I suppose it comes back to what everyone says about the greatest wrestling characters, the likes of a Steve Austin or a Ric Flair is a really good example in that the greatest wrestling characters are you know, traits of that person's own personality just turned up to 10. 
Yeah. You know, we hear it all the time from various different places. And Eric Bischoff, to me, again, you listen to him in interviews present day. I mean, the guy's, what was he now? He's in his late 60s, isn't he? Must be. Yes. Yeah. This Eric Bischoff here in 96, you can still see traits of that in real life now. You know, with his mannerisms and how he acts and how he talks and and, and certain aspects of, of, of how he, you know, discusses, you know, moments in the business. Now, to me, this is this is Eric Bischoff turned up to maybe seven. We're not quite at that 10 yet, which we're going to get the more confident he becomes in this role, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hogan does arrive, however. And he is flanked by the giant, Hall and Nash, Six, and Miss Elizabeth. And he comes to the ring and basically starts talking about how, oh, I will sign the contract. So straight away, any um, suspense and concern, you know, uh, and, and question marks over what's going to happen it is, is eradicated. One of the first things out of Hogan's mouth is, you know, I will sign the contract, rather than coming out and saying, you're not worthy of a match against me. You're beneath me. You're not a contender. You haven't been in WCW. You haven't wrestled here, you know, and so on. Why should I give you a match? And, you know, you're, you're below my level. I'm far too busy with movies. And he literally just turns around and says, I'll sign the contract. So any, any doubt is taken away straight away, which I felt was a real missed opportunity there, to be fair. Yeah. I think they could have told a better story with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then he starts banging on about, you know, Piper, show everyone the hip. So we get a weird moment where Piper hitches his kilt up and shows everyone his hip. But there's nothing wrong with it, to which Hogan then says, no, no, the other one. And Hogan hitches up Piper's kilt and helps him put his trunks to one side to show a big scar that he has from a hip replacement operation which was kind of surreal. That was a bit of an odd thing for me. Yeah. Um, they're talking about him being old and having this hip operation and so on. And Hogan says that he doesn't normally pick on cripples. And I was like, whoa, that has not aged well. You know? No. <laughs> uh, the contract is, is, is signed. And then they beat Dane Piper, attacking the hip with a chair and so on. They spray paint the guy. Um, <laughs> Before Piper gets up, and I liked this to be honest. Normally, it wasn't so much of a beatdown that Piper shouldn't have moved because that it wasn't that dramatic. But normally, I don't like people when they've been attacked by four or five guys no selling it. And Piper doesn't no sell it here, but he does get up, flip the table, and run his mouth a bit more. Normally, I'd be thinking, "Ah, oh, mate, you've just been beaten up by four or five guys. You shouldn't be doing that." But I like the way Piper got the last word in here. Because it's not the NWO walking away, leaving the babyface beaten again. All of a sudden, Piper's up and saying, is that all you got? I'll see you at Starcade or whatever it was. And there's that little bit of intrigue there. So, oh, hang on. Piper still managed to get up. I mean, you can see he's he's been roughed up. You can see he's struggling. You can see he's in pain. But he's still got up. And the commentary team at this point are really pushing the aspect that Hogan has never beaten Piper. So again, you place yourself back into this night in 1996. There's intrigue there, isn't there? 
Absolutely, mate. And it's they are really working hard to um, show Roger Piper as a legitimate content, contender. So it's like, wow. Like, even if you had only started watching wrestling when WCW came or Nitro came around, you would you would feel from the vid- music video that Roddy Piper did and the promo that he brought up the history with, you'd feel that he is definitely worthy of challenging for the belt. Yeah. And you got to think as well, this is 96. It, I, mean, I, I don't know how old Piper would have been in 96. I'm, I'm assuming uh, late fairties going into, you know, something in that kind of region. But in 96, this is November, six months previous. He was in a very big, high-profile contest at WrestleMania. Yeah. You know, he was the commissioner or, or the on-screen authority figure for the WWF for a period, going into WrestleMania 12 as well, because he was the guy who made the 60-minute Ironman match between Shawn Michaels and mm-hmm. uh, Bret Hart. He's also been in movies and been on television. So, yeah, it's easy to look at Piper and think about him wrestling Hogan and mock it in a way. I mean, the dirt sheets were referring to the age of these guys. The WWF themselves were referring to the age of these guys, of course, with the, you know, the, the sort of billionaire Ted skits that they, they aired. But when you look at it, you've got Hogan who at this, I mean, Austin's not at the level that he would go on to be at this stage just yet. So you've got Hogan, who is still by far and away the biggest name and most recognizable name in professional wrestling because of what happened in the WWF with the whole Hulkamania thing and the WrestleMania runs and so on. Who has now given his career a, a shot in the arm with this NWO stuff. And the NWO at this point is the hottest thing on television. And then you've got a guy who was just in the other company in a real prominent position on their biggest show of the year yeah okay the match sucked it was driving all over the fucking place and <laughs> hollywood backlot brawl gold dust or some nonsense but nonetheless it was still a very prominent position on on the wws television had he's headlined the first wrestlemania with hogan and he legitimately has never lost to hogan via pinball yeah. you know hogan has never beaten him so there is there is that kind of unfinished business aspect and at this point in 96, yeah, these guys are a little bit older. Yeah, they might not be able to move like a Bret Hart or a Shawn Michaels who are on the other channel. But when it comes to name value alone, not in-ring action, not, not entertainment from bell to bell, because the WWF main event picture with, with Shawn Michaels, especially through 96, had that nailed down without a doubt. Yeah. But when it comes to name value, the average fan, who may be flicking between channels and you know, uh, sometimes a lapsed fan, maybe who's was, who's was fallen out of wrestling, who then flicks through the TV and scans through, you know, what's going on on WWF TV, and then finds Nitro and sees Piper and Hogan in the ring. It, it, to me, it's 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 business wise, it's a good decision because these guys, by name value, they're a draw still in '96 yeah. for me. No, you're completely right. And just for the record, um, Roddy Piper was 42 here and Hulk Hogan was 41. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So there we go. Anyway, the match is set and we're told it's going to happen at Starcade next month, uh, the trail end of December after Christmas. So it'll be interesting to see how we build towards that. Now, Danny. 
I'm going to be straight up honest with you here. We've got officially four matches left, but we we kind of have a, a fifth match that's a little bit of a throwaway as well. Yeah. The main event we're going to discuss with a bit more detail, of course, the, the 60-man Battle Royal, the World War Three event itself. But I really felt like this event fell off a cliff at this point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially with our next match. <laughs> I really felt like it, it just dropped off the edge of a cliff here. Um, you, you're right, the next match we have the amazing French Canadians taking on Harlem Heat. Uh, the, the French Canadians are escorted to the ring by Colonel Parker. Harlem Heat is obviously with Sister Sherry. I, I mean, the, the crowd love Sherry because they just want to see her get hold of Colonel Parker. The stipulation is if Harlem Heat wins, then that happens. And I mean, ultimately, Harlem Heat do go on to win the match. And Sherry does get, I think, about 90 seconds with Colonel Parker before he runs <laughs> off. The crowd yeah. are wild for Sherry, they're, they're popping for everything she does. There's not much to cover, really, with the Sherry Parker sort of throwaway bit at the end, I guess, Danny is there. I mean, Sherry gets some shots in, and the crowd are wild for her before he runs away. It's kind of the gist of it, isn't it? It really is, mate. But the crazy thing is, we we've gone like we've discussed um, all we've discussed up to this Roddy Piper um, and NWO in ring segment, and we're only one hour and nine minutes into the show. Mm. So that just is mind blowing. But yeah, as you said about um, the Sherry um, Parker business, yeah, it was all to do with that. We all knew what was going to happen. There was no way Harlem Heat were going to lose this to the amazing French Canadians. So, yeah, it was kind of just there. Yeah, it, there is very much the case of what it was. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I think I ended up looking at my phone at one point during this, which is incredibly unprofessional of me, but I, I just had no... It, it just didn't grab me. There was just nothing... Even with the stipulation of the Sherry and Parker stuff, there was just no... Nothing to hook me in, I, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, especially after such a hot segment where, I mean, you can we can sit here and criticise it, but it was really, really good um, overall, um, especially when you've got uh, the matches that are being talked about as well and you want to know what happens next. And it's kind of like, oh, we'll just put you here. It's very much like um, WrestleMania 18 when you had Rock Hogan and then you had a tag team title match straight after that nobody cared about or even remembers. And then you had the main event and it was kind of like, Oh, like we just, we might as well just leave to beat the traffic now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fair enough. Mink. That's fair enough. Um, I kind of felt a bit more optimistic with the next match. I thought, okay, yeah. psychosis. He's been entertaining when we've seen him in the past. And we all know how highly I regard Dean Malenko in 96. I think this guy is, you know, he's going to rank very highly when it comes to our end of calendar year, um, you know, 1996 awards that we do. Um, I think Malenko is going to rank very highly for me. I look, I, I saw these guys coming out. I thought, okay, great. Here we go. Then this is going to pick back up. Uh, I think the best way of describing this match for me is just quite simply disappointing. I can see that, mate, especially with the crowd acting how they did during this. Um, I made a note of that, uh, saying, awesome match, but the crowds just weren't here for this for some reason. Yeah, they lost them about halfway through, and I think maybe this goes on a minute or two too long as well. Um, 
psychosis is well he's 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 just a bit crazy isn't he let's be honest <laughs> and some of the things he was attempting to do it felt like Dimalenko wasn't a hundred percent on the same page or maybe mm. there was some kind of a communication issue or a timing issue with certain aspects but it just didn't quite click for me i mean they, they still did plenty of things that i sat there and went wow that was that was quite spectacular well that was quite impressive and the finish itself with regards to dimalenko you know cradling psychosis and then rolling through into a neck bridge uh, and you know, that, that looked spectacular dimalenko is just incredible of course but we had psychosis slipping over a few times and it just all felt a bit off is that is, I, I wish I could find better words to describe it, but that's kind of the closest I can get to, to, to you know, as accurate as I can with a description for this. I was, I was a bit disappointed considering Malenko was in the match and it all just felt a little bit off, you know? Yeah, um, especially when you consider the scary looking bump that psychosis took to the outside as well. Um, and then most of this was Dean Malenko trying to... I felt like it was Dean Malenko trying to slow down psychosis, but I could be wrong. Okay, um, yeah, that makes sense. No, I get Yeah, you. he was applying a lot of leg submissions and leg holds and sort of things, so was, that's how I kind of felt like. But um, decent match overall. On that note then, do you... I mean, it was, again, you're right, it was decent. Don't get me wrong. Or maybe I'm being a bit too negative here. But I expect a bit more because because Malenko in '96, as I've said every time we've seen him, I've, I've I've you know sang this guy's praises. I think the guy is fantastic. This just didn't live up to what I was expecting it to be from two guys who are, I I think are very very good at what they do. Would you say maybe a clash of styles hindered this a touch to stop making it a, a, as great as it could have been on paper? Possibly, man. That's a good way of putting it, um, especially because psychosis is so new. Um, and Dean Malenko is definitely not a high-flying man. He's just more of like ground working and yeah. um, mat wrestling and things like that. So it could be, yeah, that could be a really good um, case. Just psychosis just needs a little bit more time. Mm, yeah, potentially, potentially. Uh, we, we see Mean Gene again. And he is with um, current, you know, favourite of the show, Lex Luger, who is doing some brilliant stuff here in the trail end of 96. And Luger is talking about Sting, and he says that Sting smells of the NWO. I'm not quite sure how that... What, what, does the, what do you think the NWO smells like? Oh, maybe the inside of a limousine, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, potentially. I imagine, I imagine they smell of cigars, liquor... And, you know, Old Spice, maybe. I imagine Hogan's an Old Spice wearer, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Or um, spray paint. Ah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Scott Hall Scott Hall blatantly reeks of CK1. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> That's what Scott Hall smells like, CK1. But, um, yeah, apparently Sting smells of the NWO. Um, so thanks for that, Lex. <laughs> Uh, next, we see some oh, members. Just, just before we go there, sir, there was yep. something that Mean Gene teased. Do you remember? No, go on. He says that a new superstar will be coming to WCW very soon. And if you call the hotline, you might get a hint of who it is. Now, who do you think that is, Si? I think this is Mean Gene trying to make himself a few quid. Because he, <laughs> he said, 
there's rumors of a superstar coming to the coming to WCW, which yeah. means that it could be fucking anybody. <laughs> you ring I the hotline and they charge yeah. you nine ninety nine a fucking second, <laughs> and Gene probably talks about loads of other bullshit before you get around to what he wants to say, and he'll just go, "Oh yeah, there is a chance of something happening." And then it just starts the tape again. That's kind of how I imagined it to be. I may be completely wrong, but that's how I imagined it to be. I thought that this was Bret Hart's cut, because I remember there was rumours of him coming to WCW, but I'm not sure if he had already returned to WWF at this point, because I know he was filming um, um, Lonesome Dove. Right. By this point, what are we? End of November, aren't we? Yeah, November, November 24th. 20th, yeah, Bret would have been back. Oh, yeah. Because I believe the Survivor Series was a touch early that year. It was kind of mid-November, maybe a touch before, where Shawn Michaels dropped the title to Sid Vicious in Madison Square Garden. Yes. The and Brett wrestled Austin on that show, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that was the 17th of November. Okay, like, well, okay, maybe not as early as I first thought then, but it's a bit earlier than I am. For some, in my head, Survivor Series is always right at the end of November. Yeah, that might literally that might have happened once when I was a kid, and for some reason <laughs> I cling on to that. I don't know why that is, but that's how I imagine Survivor Series to be. But yeah, November seventeenth. Yeah, Brett would have wrestled uh, Austin at Survivor Series ninety six, so he would have been back by now. Oh. And also, I think it's important to remember as well with regards to the hotline and people jumping from one company to another is that th there's still lots of lawsuits flying back and forth all over the place with regards to hall and nash um contract tampering speaking to people who are under contract and so on um the issue with sean waltman coming across from the wwf to become six and join the nwo that was delayed for many weeks because bischoff was terrified that they were going to get sued again so i don't think that Gene would give any information out on the hotline because it was well known at the time that I think it was, I think it was primarily Harrod Finkel actually that would listen to the WCW hotline and report back. Yeah. So I mean, Finkel was, um, he would watch lots of ECW tapes and, and all this sort of stuff as well and just report back to McMahon and Patterson and, and, and Pritchard and so on and all these guys as to what was going on elsewhere in the wrestling business. And, I'm fairly certain that WCW at this point, late 96, Gene wouldn't have said shit on that line that would have got him in trouble. <laughs> no chance in her. Not if it affected no. his bottom line, you know? No, no, you're dead on with that, yeah. <laughs> um, next up, we have the Outsiders versus the Faces of Fear versus the Nasty Boys. You said earlier on that we've had quite a bit going on, and then you looked at the the counter, and we were like only an hour and however many minutes it was into the show. You said, Danny. Yep, hour and nine. Yeah. Okay. I get the feeling that I don't know if it was an intentional thing, or if they got to this point in the pay per view and just went, "Shit, we've got ages left," <laughs> because this match feels like it goes way too long for what it is. Yeah. It really does, mate. I mean, we are just, I mean, I had to stop this show a couple of times and had to stop it at the one hour 53 minute uh, mark because this just went on. It just went on a bit, didn't it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I've got, I suppose, you know, a little insight as to how I operate. 
I use my uh, the word program word processor on, on my laptop for making notes for, for, for anything other than chain wrestling. Um, but chain wrestling, for some reason, I still use paper and pen. I don't know if it's just force of habit. I don't know. But anything else, Doctor Who pod, Nitro Nights, etc. I use, I use the, the word processor uh, device on my laptop. And I basically make bullet points with, with literally the dots or the bullet points next to them. Um, if I count them down now, I mean, it, um, the beginning of a match is written in red. All the notes for that match is written in black. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've got 15 bullet points for this match. Five of them say some form of this is dragging, this drags, this is being dragged out now. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of how this match goes, I think. Yeah, very much. <laughs> an interesting aspect for me, though, is kind of away from the actual wrestling itself. Because Tony Schiavone, when the Outsiders are making their entrance, the Outsiders, by the way, WCW Tag Team Champions come out first which I'm not a fan of, but it's done for a reason, which we'll come to in a moment. Tony Schiavone talks about him walking out of Nitro the other night when the Outsiders got in his face and started, you know, roughing him up a little bit and he felt let down by Larry Zavisco. He talks about his friends there with him, Heenan and Dusty Rhodes. They both say they would not have got involved and Schiavone doesn't like the sound of that either, citing that they both you know, Heenan as well, are they are both former professional wrestlers and even turns to Dusty Rhodes and says you're a former three-time world champion and you wouldn't stand up for me. And Schiavone's really unhappy about this and I think rightfully so and he actually also states he's unsure if he will return to ringside tomorrow night on Nitro, which is intriguing for me. Um, I don't know if that means he's now going to be sat up on the entranceway at the at the announce desk where Bischoff used to be, because now Bischoff is NWO. I um, don't know if he's going to carry on his commentary role tomorrow night on Nitro. Uh, a lot of moving parts with regards to the announcers, I think, Danny. It really is, mate. Um, I wouldn't mind if uh, Tony Giovanni just quit here and Dusty Rhodes replaced him on Nitro. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? I no, like Dusty. No. I like Dusty, but I think that I think that I like Dusty on the pay-per-views because we don't get him every week. Yeah, yeah. No, um, Tunch Bunny is brilliant. I mean, he, I even in his worst days that people say, oh, he was rubbish in 2000. I think he added so much comment, um, like hilariousness to the uh shows and stuff like that so yeah i'm a big fan of shivani but this was um at least they paid it off about what happened on uh, the previous night show that was um interesting yeah yeah definitely uh so then the nasty boys the outsiders are in the ring the nasties make their entrance uh, and they they fight the outsiders before the faces of fear have come down, before their own music has finished playing. That horrific entrance theme singing about they are the nasty boys. Oh, for fuck, just fuck off. <laughs> and I I'm really puzzled here by the nasty boys and what what people expect, whether it's the nasties themselves or the people producing the show or anything like that. Because when you think about it, they were turning their back on WCW. The Nasty Boys were desperate to join the NWO. After weeks and weeks and weeks of saying we're not NWO, we're not WCW. They, you know, they they were they didn't want to associate themselves with WCW back then. Then they really wanted to be part of the NWO. Then the NWO beat them up, and now they're 
trying to get a baby face reaction as they attack the NWO. They just look like losers to me at every turn. It's like WCW, you turned your back on WCW, so now the fans don't really accept you as the baby faces you're trying to be, because they are trying to wrestle in a baby face manner. They are trying to get baby face reactions here. The NWO made you look bloody stupid. <laughs> you just, I just don't get the nasty boys at this point in 1996. And I'll go as far as to say, what's the fucking point? <laughs> it's that straightforward for me, you know? Yeah, no, you're completely right, mate. Um, this this match was just three heel teams, as far as I looked at it. Um, I mean, if anything, you kind of say you can say the outsiders are more babyface, but they're portrayed as heels because yeah. that's what their role is. The same with the faces of fear, even though they've had babyface moments. Overall, they still belong to the Dungeon of Doom, to Jimmy Hart. Um, I just found this one just very hard to watch and follow. But um, I loved that the opening, we had the Nasties and the Outsiders, as you were saying about um, them two teams abroad and then the Faces of Fear come out. I liked that because it showed that these two teams couldn't wait to get a hold of each other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, To put into context how much this match dragged, I felt the Harlem Heat match went too long. And I think you said the same thing when we were talking about that a few moments ago. Harlem Heat versus the amazing French Canadians, even with the additional Sherry and Parker match tagged on the end, was just over 10 minutes. The 60-man, 60, 6-0, 60-man, three-ring battle royal lasts 28 minutes, okay? Yeah. This tag match here, which is basically just punchy, kicky bullshit all the way through, lasts over 16 minutes. I thought this was brutal. And the only thing I found interesting or entertaining in any way, shape or form was the outsiders and specifically Scott Hall with how they were behaving on the outside. Yeah. They, their, their whole mindset, their whole, I suppose, tactical game plan for this contest was to allow the nasties and the faces of fear to beat the shit out of each other and they were going to pick up the pieces. So whilst these two teams are just punching and kicking each other for what seems like half my life, <laughs> they are still on the apron applauding and pretending to smoke cigarettes. And uh, yeah. that, that tickled me. But even that wore a bit thin towards the end. The crowd don't give a shit by this point. They are they don't care at all. Even with National Hall, they don't care because this is just dragging and it's just bad. A great moment for me, though, was when Nash and Hall got tagged in at the same time, Danny. What did you think of this? That was brilliant. Um, I enjoyed that because it was like... They were trying to uh, pin each other, but the other teams kept breaking it up. I found that really good as well. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was good. Ultimately, after the uh, the incident where they both tagged in at the same time, somehow Jimmy Hart and his stupid jacket with skulls on gets on the apron. His megaphone ends up in the ring. Uh, Brian Nobbs gets nailed with it. He takes the jackknife powerbomb by Nash and, and the NWO team walk away with their tag titles. To me, it's a waste of a quarter of an hour. Mm. It's a waste of 15 minutes. I want the outsiders to be on the show, but, and they should be on the show. They are Hall and Nash. They're two of the hottest performers in the wrestling business 
at that moment in time. The Nasty Boys should be nowhere near a pay-per-view at this point in 1906 unless somebody can do something spectacular with regards to their character work or their presentation or whatever. I'm, I'm over them. I'm done. I've got no issues with the faces of fear, but they feel like they were kind of in a similar way to Jarrett earlier on, I suppose, kind of crowbarred into this match just for the sake of it. Yeah. This is a 16-minute match. This is 16 minutes on a pay-per-view that could have been given to Benoit Sullivan. It could have been given to Arn Anderson. It could have been given to all sorts of other wrestlers. I mean, there's not a ladies match on this card. Are we still having this tournament to build up towards our first ladies champion? You know, you could have given five minutes to a ladies match here. Yeah. Instead of a quarter of an hour of just punchy, kicky bullshit. It was <laughs> crap. Yeah, it's definitely not one I'd go back and watch. No, but there we go. <laughs> that then brings us to the main event of the evening. We have the World War Three pay-per-view headline match. 60 men, three rings... Over the top rope battle royal. Winner gets a title shot against Hollywood Hogan. My God, what a fucking mess. <laughs> we said the exact same thing last year. So Did I really? It, yeah. <laughs> this, um, I mean, we're going to get into it, but I found the commentary was too much. That's just me, but like without even talking about the split screen, what we'll get into in a minute, the commentary, the setups, everything like that, they spend too long showing us basically previews of who you're going to be listening to, who you're going to be, uh, who's going to call what ring. I found that it just was a bit too much for me. Mm. Yeah, again, a lot of wasted airtime. Um, Bear with me here. I'm just going to run through the 60 competitors. I apologize if I bore people, but I feel like I need to list the 60 competitors because there will be somebody out there who will be interested. Bang, I, bang, I, I, did this. I think. <laughs> uh, did he really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have Arn Anderson, Marcus Bagwell, The Barbarian, Chris Benoit, Big Bubba, Jack Boot. Who the fuck is Jack Boot? I believe he was on Saturday night. <laughs> Okay. Bunkhouse Buck, Cyclop, yep. Disco Inferno, Jim Duggan, Bobby Eaton, Mike Enos, Galaxy, Joe Gomez, Jimmy Graffiti, ah, oh, good friend of the show, Johnny Grunge, Hoover Dude Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, Scott Hall, Prince Ikea, Ice Train, Mr. JL, I wonder who that is behind the mask, Jeff Jarrett, Chris Jericho, Kenny Chaos, Conan, Lex Luger, Dimalenko, Steve, Mongo, McMichael, Meng, Rey Mysterio Jr., Hugh fucking Morris, Kevin Nash, <laughs> Scott Norton, Carl Ouellette, Diamond Dallas Page, La Parker, I didn't see La Parker there, interesting, Craig Pittman, Oh, Craig Pittman, dear me. <laughs> Jim Powers, Robbie Rage, what a terrible name. Stevie Ray, Lord Stephen Regal, The Renegade, Scotty Riggs, Fucking Roadblock, Jack Rougeau, <laughs> Tony Rumble, what a name that is, eh? Mark Starr, Rick Steiner, who gets called Scott Steiner throughout the duration of this contest by our good buddy. Uh, what was his name, Danny? What's the contest name? Lee Marshall, that knobhead. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ron Studd, the Taskmaster, Six, Booker T, Squire David Taylor, Ultimo Dragon, 
Villano, four. Okay. Mike Wall Street, Pez Watley, and Alex Wright. Why? Okay. The, we don't get all of those guys competing straight from the off because we have the Horseman and the Dungeon of Doom getting in a big brawl. Benoit, when he comes to the ring, first of all, is a mess. His face is all bruised up and so on because of the match he apparently had with Kevin Sullivan in Baltimore. Eventually, we're told that all of the Horsemen and the Dungeon of Doom have been eliminated because they're too busy fighting amongst themselves to get involved. Lee Marshall ends up hit somehow, which I'm not going <laughs> to lie. They tried to get sympathy from the crowd, but I pretty yeah. much fucking love that. Um, <laughs> at one point, we get the shape that Tony Rumble has been eliminated. Still to this day, don't know who that is. And uh, <laughs> the, the presentation of this itself, it's... The split screen but we've got three cameras and very bright mid-90s graphics as, as people can imagine how the 90s think think saved by the bell and the intro to that very bright 90s graphics lots of voices shouting back and forth and i don't know if it was just the presentation of this i don't know if it, it was because there's 60 men and the split screens made each individual screen quite small or if it's just my old eyes or a combination of all of them but i couldn't see a damn thing that was going on yeah it was very hard to follow but i think the main plot line of this match was that the nwr was sticking together and the four horsemen were just battling everybody and obviously lex luger um he was the main uh not the main star, but kind of like, as we used to earlier, the favourite to win. So the camera was on him a lot. I loved the fact that Dusty Rhodes um, kept confusing Ron Studd for John Studd. And <laughs> I think John Studd was already passed away at that point, wasn't he? I, I, I don't know. He may well have. He may well have. <laughs> Dear me. Um, speaking of Ron Studd, there's a moment where everyone, I mean, like everyone, tries to pin him. Yeah. What the hell was going on there? <laughs> I have no idea, but it was, yeah, it's very hard to follow a match like this. And, oh, just what can you say? Oh, yeah, um, John Studd had passed away before this pay-per-view. Bloody hell, Dusty. Um, <laughs> uh, Bagwell, at one point, sends his tag team partner, Riggs out the ring. He eliminates Riggs, but then Bagwell is quickly eliminated as well. And it leads to more arguing, arguments between the American males. But in true WCW fashion, the cameras miss this. Now we've got three <laughs> screens. How have we missed it when we've got three <laughs> fucking screens? It's insane. It really is. <laughs> at one point, well, not at one point, at more on, on more than one occasion, um, the camera for ring two and the camera for ring three were showing us the same thing, just from a different angle. So there was a moment where Ice Train was punching somebody, may have been Jeff Jarrett, and we were looking at it from the left-hand side of Ice Train and the right-hand side of Ice Train, even though these cameras were supposed to be on different rings. No idea what was going on there. No. Uh, I don't know if this happened when you were watching it back, but I, I lost the, the, the image at one point. The screen just went black. Yeah. Okay, thank God for that. It wasn't just my telly then. Um, <laughs> we get told Jack Boot is still there. And then he's eliminated straight away. Um, 
eventually, I mean, at this, at this point, mind everyone's in uh, everyone's in one ring. We've got to the point where people have been eliminated down to a certain number, so everyone gets into one ring. And for some reason, we stay on the split screen for another ten minutes. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> they was making use of those cameras, weren't they? <laughs> oh my word! Uh, we finally go down to one camera. And we've kind of got a, a line in the sand being drawn, so to speak, because we have members of the NWO and members of the WCW roster and then Diamond Dallas Page in a corner on his own, which I thought was quite cleverly done. It doesn't show who he's siding with yet. Yeah. And everyone just rushes each other, starts fighting. The giant eliminates Rey Mysterio with one hand. He holds Rey Mysterio above his head with one hand, waves and then throws him out. That was impressive. Yeah. That was really excellent. Like that. Um, I believe, yeah, as you were saying, um, we're down to uh, the members of the NWO, Lex Luger, well, not Rey Mysterio anymore since he just got chucked out, Jeff Jarrett and Dam Dennis Page. Now, boiling it down to those baby faces, I would say, yeah, apart from Rey Mysterio, all of them had a solid chance of actually being booked to win this. Would you think, Si? Who was that? Sorry, Jarrett? Um, Jeff Jarrett, DDP, Lex Luger and Rey Mysterio. Regal was there as well, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, Regal, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. Because Regal, you know, from the WCW side, Luger obviously lasts the longest. Regal lasts second longest, which is kind of random, I think. Um, I suppose, yeah, you're right. You can make an argument for any of those. Regal, maybe not. Regal, I couldn't see it. But I I suppose you could make an argument for any of those WCW guys to have won this. I think it would have been difficult to try and explain potentially Jarrett winning it but the DDP storyline could have worked Luger would have been very interesting as well uh, so yeah I, I get your point I think you can make an argument for anyone there to, to have gone on to have won this I mean I'm not saying it would have been the right decision but you could make an argument for it I suppose Danny yeah yeah absolutely but I loved um, the finishing of this match was really good yeah i enjoyed this as well and uh, um, the whole of the last sort of second half of the show to me as i said it falls off a cliff dramatically this pay-per-view and the whole second half of the show is pretty dire until we get to this moment when regal is eliminated and we have the nwo nash hall the giant and six all stood in one corner looking across at lex luger and all of a sudden the crowd are invested again i mean luger yeah. is over here as a babyface in 96 the crowd are on their feet the commentators are invested luger runs at the nwo and just starts hitting anything that moves the crowd erupt for that it's it's brilliant you know brilliant wrestling brilliant tv however you want to word it luger has a go at everyone eventually the numbers game takes uh, uh, you know the numbers game is you know leads to the nwo having the advantage hall goes for the razor's edge or the outsider edge or whatever it may well be worded at this point but gets back dropped out the ring. So he is eliminated. Six runs towards Luger. Luger grabs him and, you know, Gorilla presses him above his head and, and presses Six over the top rope onto Hall. So Six is eliminated. That made Luger look incredible. Yeah. Um, Nash runs at Hall and he grab, grapples with the big guy and eventually gets him in the rack, which visually looked amazing. Then the giant kind of bundles into them and sends Nash out before then also bundling Luger over the top rope as well for the giant to win the match. Now, I loved the finish of this because I 
if, if this was me in 96, I'm thinking, but hang on, the giant is NWO. And he's now got a title match. Yeah. I'm watching Nitro tomorrow night to see what happens. And secondly, I am all, you know, 15 year old me, 40, whatever may would have, whatever age I was at this point, I would have been all about Lex Luger right here. I'd have been thinking, that guy nearly did it. Yeah. He nearly, he's my guy now. Come on. We don't know what's happening with Sting. Savage has vanished off the face of the earth. Flair's injured. You know, DDP, we're unsure what he's doing. Luger's our guy. I think Luger comes out of this looking, without winning, looking incredibly strong. Summarize your thoughts then, Danny, on the main event match itself. It was, as we were saying, it was very hard to follow for a lot of it. But when we got down to those um, baby faces versus the NWO, especially when it just came down to Lex Luger, I was on the edge of my seat and I was thinking, oh, Lex is going to win this. Fantastic. I can't wait to see Lex Luger win this. And then when he didn't, it just shocked me. I was like, no, really? Like, so it, it really got me. In. This is why I love doing this because like, I don't know the results of any of these main event matches or anything like that. And that really got me as a wrestling fan. I was so sure that Lex Luger was going to win this, but mm-hmm. out he went and it was like, it just made you feel uh, just so frustrated. And like now, but now also, as you said, I can't wait to see what happens tomorrow night, how they recover. And it's, and it's very interesting to see um, NWO member win this because now that's another story that they can tell. Um, even if Piper wins um, and then he could feud with the Giant or if Hogan retains, he could also feud with the Giant as well. It's very interesting to see what avenue they will go down to. Yeah, I think the wording of, of how... Uh, uh, the wording of these matches coming up is quite important as well. It felt like they were very, Tony Schiavone especially was, was very careful and specific when selecting his words in that Piper Hogan is signed for Starcade. But this match is going to decide who the next challenger to Hogan is. Now, don't get me wrong. This is WCW and this is also pro wrestling. So plans change all the time. That could be forgotten about the following night on Nitro. But just looking at the pay-per-view and how that was worded by Shivani, that didn't come across to me as a throwaway comment. This came across to me more so as a a deliberate ploy to to put something into people's ears, to, uh, to sort of structure people into thinking, okay, this is where we're going next. So it is going to be quite intriguing to me um, getting your reactions as you view this for the very first time in the upcoming weeks, my friend. Yep. Okay. I guess all that is left now after reviewing uh, World War Three from 1996 is to give our summaries overall, our hit, miss or middling. Uh, and then, but first of all, our high points and our low points, our woos and our oh brothers, Danny. Woo! Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. First or second, my friend? I'll go second this week, mate. Okie doke. Uh, I will start with my O-brother first, because I like to try and finish on something positive. Um, The second half of the show, for me, it, the way it just dropped off a cliff. Yeah. The, I tried to think of something more specific. I tried to put forward one incident that was my worst moment of this show. But I feel from the beginning of the Harlem Heat match onwards, 
there's not much there that it, it is particularly good viewing. And there's so much of it that was pretty bad. I can't pinpoint one thing. I mean, the production issues were a problem with regards to the split screens. So much going on, I couldn't follow what was happening. Too many voices on the commentary. The fact that we're missing moments like Bagwell and Riggs eliminating each other and arguing, which is obviously important to those guys because that's going to be a storyline for them going forward. And we've missed the, the moment that's going to potentially lead towards that. Lee Marshall calling Rick Steiner by the wrong name several times. <laughs> Dusty Rhodes calling Ron Studd by the wrong name several times. <laughs> uh, I just feel that there's... It sounds silly because what I'm criticising WCW for on this particular show with regards to production issues is also kind of part of the appeal of WCW for me. It's not polished. It's not overproduced like the WWE. It is rough around the edges. There is a certain charm to it. But there's just so much in the second half of this show that makes me think, man, that was that was bad. From the one hour mark or whatever it may want to be, one hour ten or whatever, it just the quality level just dropped so much. That's yeah. my that, that's my old brother this week, my friend. It's just like the, the second half of the show and how it fell off a cliff. What about yeah. you, bud? So for the old brother, it had to be that triple threat tag because it was just hard to sit through. Even yeah. sitting for it in two separate viewings huh? was like, oh, this is, I've had enough of this. <laughs> yeah, I get you. I get you. Uh, for my woo, my, my positive moment, there are a couple. Um, the opener was by far and away the best match on the card. It was superb. And I, I do recommend people go and check out that match. It, it's very, very good. Rey Mysterio versus Ultimo Dragon. But I'm going to go with the finish of the Battle Royal because I think Lex Luger looked fantastic. And to me, nay. I mean, Luger's held the world title before. He was in the main event picture in the WWF. I get all that. But to me, now in 96 for the first time since Luger has returned to WCW. I think I'm looking at a main event player, and I think I'm looking at a guy who could win the world championship. Yeah. Luger looked fantastic. The booking of Lex Luger here was brilliant. So that's my yeah. woo for this week. What about you, Danny? It has to be Eric Bischoff being basically uh, born as a heel. Because, okay. um, the, as we were saying earlier in the show, this is Eric Bischoff that um, everyone thinks of when you think of this is the look and I think he handled himself in a promo battle with Roddy Piper very very well here certainly a lot better than he did on um, Nitro the, the previous um, week so mm. yeah that's mine Eric Bischoff Fair enough uh, I suppose overall then bud um, give me your summary of the pay-per-view and most importantly uh, hit miss or middling so it has to be um this is a pay-per-view i honestly wouldn't go back and watch this um it for me it was a high middle um it wasn't like it wasn't too terrible or anything as you said the first half really really good stuff and then you've got the main event finish was really good but yeah it was a high middle for me mate how about you High middle. Why? See, this is why you are the the optimistic one out of the two of us, <laughs> and, and I'm the grumpy old man. Um, <laughs> for me, honestly, uh, yeah. this has got to go down as a mess. Mm. Uh, you, you think it's a pay-per-view, so you're looking at touching three hours, whatever it may be, two hours, 50 minutes, or whatever it may well be, right? Yeah. 
You break it down, the opener, superb. But that's 10 minutes. Y2J versus, sort of not Y, he wasn't Y2J at this point, but Nick, uh, Nick Patrick versus Chris Jericho. It's a good comedy match, but I don't think I'd rush back and watch that again. Uh, the Piper stuff. Okay, that was good. But again, we had the same moments where the timing was off and it got a bit rambly at times. Not as bad as we have had in the past, but still leaning towards that kind of territory. And then everything after that was shite until we got to the Luger finish. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything on this pay-per-view, barring the opener, that I would go back and watch again. And the, yeah. opener, is, and the opener is 10 minutes. Roughly, give or take. So for me, I mean, I nearly had it down as a very low middle, mm. thinking the the opener might have saved it. But I'm like, no, because it was just 10 minutes and then everything just is what it is. And I'm pretty sure that I can go back and watch better Rey Mysterio matches. I'm pretty sure I can go back and watch better Ultimo Dragon matches. I'm pretty sure I could probably find better matches between these two, these two as well. But it's still a very, very good match. But it's the highlight of a bad show. So for me, it's a miss yeah. this week, my friend. Yeah, no, I'll get you, mate. And uh, Doves W have put on some brilliant pay-per-views, even just recently. Um, it's just a, it's just weird that they didn't keep the momentum up for this, but um, hopefully for Starcades, they will. There you go. There you go. Um, okay, there we go. Next week, we will be returning back with another edition of Nitro Nights, looking at another Monday Nitro. The fallout from this pay-per-view. Where does Luger go next? What's happening with Sting? What's happening with DDP? Where the fuck is Randy Savage? Is Ric Flair <laughs> feeling better yet? And all that good stuff. Uh, Danny, before we get there, though, and before we depart today, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you and all the great content you are involved in, please? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meet with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. And you can hear me here next week where we'll be looking about looking at what happened after the pay-per-view with the great Cy Powell. Oh, you're too kind, my friend. You're too kind. Uh, anything I am involved in, you can find by the network that carries this show, so that's SJP World Media. And you want to be searching at SJP World Media on Facebook, Twitter, and all your podcast players, platforms, and providers. There's so much going on, it's ridiculous. We have double in the corner for you now, going forward. So we have Benny Mac looking at modern-day WWE. We have Tyler Peters under the In the Corner banner, also looking at wrestling outside of WWE, uh, whether he looks at Impact, AEW, NXT, whatever. Um, a little bit of something diverse and different for you there. We also have the Doctor Who pod with Dan Griffin looking back at classic and new Who. Uh, so much going on, it's it's insane. So much going on, it's insane. And new shows coming all the time. So make sure you are following SJP World Media on Facebook. There's a page, there's a group. Um, all the live content as well via YouTube. And also it gets shown in the Facebook group as well. Um, at SJP World Media across the board is what you need. But this show itself, you can find on Twitter and Facebook by searching at Nitro underscore Nights. It's at Nitro underscore Nights. Danny, even though that show was a little bit wobbly and a little bit poor, and probably the first miss I've given in, well, as long as I can remember, to be fair, I still had a good time talking to you about it, bud. Yeah, the same here, mate. We had a good laugh about it, and there's certainly things that we're going to be looking forward to in the future. So, yeah. There we go. Uh, I will speak to you next week then, my friend. Take care, mate. 
And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>